now, The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. Our show is brought to you from our sponsors, Denise Webster, mortgage broker with Dominion Lending Services, Modern Mortgage Group, Lori Zorn, insurance manager for Island Savings, and inspector Carrie Smith from InspectTech. If you need an opinion from experts in insurance, mortgages, or building inspections, Denise, Lori, Lori, and Carrie are great people to chat with. Just visit the cfax1070.com website and look under Shows. There you'll find us, The Whole Home Show, with me, Tony Joe. You'll find their contact information, or you can always find me online or on social media. Also, if you're looking for an expert realtor to purchase or sell your property, you can also call me. I'm a 27-year local veteran and a top agent here with Remax Camosun, Victoria's most productive real estate brokerage. Victoria has for some time and likely will be uh, for a long time, the third most expensive real estate in Canada. That's really saying something for a relatively small town. We're not a metropolitan city like Vancouver or Toronto, yet we trail only them in value in our country. Ever wonder why? Affordability remains a massive issue here in Victoria. We're not a high-income earning town like Vancouver or Toronto, not even to the level of other towns where real estate is cheaper. For instance, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa, even Saskatoon. If people aren't earning more money, why are houses so expensive, and what could the solutions be to tackle the affordability question? Today, our guests will be talking about our fair city on the topic of hurdles to development, the struggle of building affordable housing, transportation demand, and social impact on this topic. Our guests are Jane Bradbury, who is the chair of Victoria's Urban Development Institute, and Todd Littman, who is the executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. Let's start our show with our usual weekly listener question. If you have a question or curiosity about real estate, call us on our hotline. The number is 250-414-6540. Or find us online again at cfax1070.com, and we'll discuss it on the air. We had a uh, message on Facebook Messenger this week from Doris. And Doris says, I'm looking at purchasing a lease condo in Fairfield but need a mortgage. I hear that a lot of down payment money is required and that credit unions are the only places to get financing. Why, she's wondering. We actually had a very similar question to this about uh, maybe six or seven months ago. We had a uh, conversation about the difference between leasehold buildings and freehold buildings. Uh, Doris, um, you are correct. Uh, Funding a leasehold property is very different than getting a traditional mortgage on a um, a condo uh, or what we call a freehold strata unit. And I should first really quickly describe the differences between the two. So first of all, uh, in a traditional condo, you own not only the confines of the four walls of your unit, you also own a proportionate share of the common area. So we're talking about hallways, elevators, uh, the land that the property sits on as well. And banks very easily finance or they mortgage freehold strata buildings because of the fact that you have an interest in the land. You own a portion of the land that the property that the building sits on. Uh, leasehold buildings are a little different because when you pull up a title for a leasehold building, you're going to find a organization or a company. Um, sometimes it's a government organization. But you don't own the land. Basically what you're doing is you're purchasing, you're pre-purchasing the lease of uh, 
your occupancy for the unit over uh, the course of the next few years into the future. There's typically, or there's always, I should say, a term to the lease. There are many buildings that uh, surround the Beacon Hill Park, for instance, that are leasehold buildings. They uh, have anywhere from 50 to 60 years left on their lease. They were 99-year leases to begin with. Uh, they are less expensive. So one of the attractions to leasehold units is they're not priced the same as a freehold unit. Uh, to give you an example, there is a one-bedroom suite right now by Beacon Hill Park. It's, I think it's $240,000. That unit, if it was a, uh, a typical freehold strata, uh, would be more like $330,000. So the reason why they are less expensive is because they can't get financed in the same way as a freehold uh, unit can. And to get back to your question, uh, typically lenders will need uh, about 30% down payment. So unfortunately, it won't qualify for uh, other mortgage products like 5% down. Uh, and certain banks, not all of them, certain ones and credit unions will uh, finance them. So uh, I suggest that you talk to your mortgage specialist. You could always get in touch with uh, uh, Denise, our mortgage broker here at the station. She'd be happy to chat with you. Um, but thank you for your question. And for anyone else, if you have a question that you like us answered on the air, just call us again, 250-414-6540. So this week, we're starting something new, and that is your homeowner tip of the week. On the line with us right now is our show sponsor, Carrie Smith from Inspectec. Carrie, how are you doing? Good morning, Tony. Excellent. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, so uh, what is the tip that listeners need to know uh, from you, the uh, home builder uh, inspection specialist? Yeah, well, if I could emphasize one thing to a homeowner, it would be the most important thing to consider about homeownership is how your building handles water. Uh -huh. Water is always at the bottom of everything, and uh, it's like like anything else. If it's explained properly, it's not that difficult to understand. Uh, there's basically three types of water that buildings have to deal with: storm water, wastewater or sewage, mm -hmm. and of course domestic drinking water, potable water. And uh, storm water is the one that I want to focus on because it's very unlikely that a homeowner would miss a problem with the with the drinking water system, if a tap was dripping, or if wastewater, if a toilet was plugged. Yeah, because you, you would see it. You'd, you'd know it when it was happening, right? Yeah, the fixtures are right out in the open. You use them every day. But stormwater, of course, is the piping is mostly underground, and uh, it's not a part of the, of the plumbing system that you visit very often, or it's just out of sight, out of mind. And a problem can build up over years and years, and the homeowner doesn't, uh, doesn't realize anything is wrong until they've got a house full on Christmas Eve and plumbers charge $1,000 an hour. Yes. And the drain tiles are, are plugged up. Yeah. I'm, sh I'm sure everyone's heard the story about a tree root got into the, the weeping tiles or backed up the storm drains. And it's a very, uh, a very prudent and surprisingly inexpensive homeowner maintenance exercise to have a, uh, a drain tile cleaning company come and simply clean the perimeter drains, clean the weeping tiles. You know, I have to tell you here, it's amazing when we bump into homeowners, we ask them the question when the last time they had their drain tiles cleaned uh, was. Sure. And many of them didn't even know that that was an area of maintenance. No, 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 absolutely not. Um, the, the, the piping is buried in the ground, usually a few inches below the level of the basement floor, and it's outside the building. They call them perimeter drains because it's around the perimeter of the building, mm -hmm. buried underneath all the landscaping. The only parts of it you see is the risers that come up, and that's what the downspouts from the roof gutters drain into or connect to. So you'll see a drain tile or a perimeter drain riser. 
And this groundwater, which is, and it's largely what the storm, the perimeter drain system handles, is groundwater, isn't clear tap water. It's mucky, silty, <laughs> yeah. gungy water. Yeah. And as it passes through the drain tile piping over years, it leaves behind a residue of sand and silt and debris. It clogs it up. And, it co- and clogs it up. Yeah. And, of course, this pipe is where the water is. And so the tree roots naturally gravitate or grow towards it and try and get to the water inside the pipe. And so over 10 or 15 years, it's amazing how much silt and sludge can end up in the perimeter drain system. And also some homes and and, uh, landscape dairies will have a catch basin or a surface drain, either a square box in the driveway or a circular drain with a grate out in the landscape areas. And, of course, they fill up with leaves and vegetation and debris, and nobody ever thinks to clean them out. No. Well, of course, they, they only think about it after an incident happens, right? Well, sure, sure. And so it's usually $200 or less. It's so cheap wow. to have the perimeter drains cleaned on a building. Um, uh, I had one of our rental properties done just uh, a few weeks ago. It was $172. Yeah. And they uh, flushed them all out and said, okay, call us again in 10 years and we'll clean them out again. Um, but one, one footnote with this, um, I always like to caution people when they get their drain tiles cleaned to be prepared for a sales pitch. Uh-huh. Um, uh, certainly, there's lots of reputable, ethically intact drainage companies around Victoria and they'll do a great job. Um, but, they, but they make a heck of a lot more money. Redoing drains. Your new, yeah. Selling your new drain tile system for 20 or even Thirty thousand yeah. dollars than cleaning them every ten years for two hundred bucks. Great. Well, Kerry, so, uh, mm-hmm. thanks. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the tip. That is really important. And again, uh, Lori's Zorn, our insurance uh, uh, sponsor, of course, is, is someone who always brings this up. Get this figured out beforehand until it's too late. If people need to reach you, Kerry, your number is. Great. Thank you. That's Kerry Smith from Inspectech. We're going to take a quick little break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about affordability here in Victoria. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. Today we're talking about... Greater Victoria and the affordability question. Our guest right now is the chair of Victoria's chapter of the Urban Development Institute, Jane Bradbury. Jane, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. A little backgrounder on Jane. She uh, is not only the chair of UDI, she's also co-owner of Fort Properties, uh, which is a local landowner, uh, also a developer and a property management company. Uh, many, uh, Some of the many properties that they own may be familiar to you Uh, As you're driving by, for instance, uh, the building that the Red Barn Market and Home Hardware is in Oak Bay on Oak Bay Avenue. Uh, Also, the vibrant corner of Fort and Blanchard, which includes Starbucks, uh, Latakisa, Chorizo and Company, uh, B-Love, Yala, all of the favorite places, the Livet. Uh, and also the amazing Fort Commons. So that's uh, uh, that's what keeps you busy during the daytime. It does, yep. Yeah. Um, so, Jane, tell the listeners a little bit about UDI, what the Urban Development Institute does. So UDI represents um, a whole host of, indivi- of organizations and individuals that work in the development industry in Victoria. And uh, we basically do a combination of education, networking, and advocacy work for housing um, and related development initiatives in our city. I mean, there there is so much, and UDI has been around for a long time. It's uh, over forty years, I think, right? It has, yeah. Yeah, 
and uh, tell us about how how UDI in Victoria has been uh, during your year as the chair. There's a lot of stuff going on here in town. There is. It's a very busy, active, dynamic time. We're seeing cranes all over the city. There's a lot of development happening. Um, we've had a, a major change in the provincial government, uh, which is definitely resulted in some interesting policies, as well as uh, a lot of different things happening among our different municipalities as well. So uh, there's a lot of advocacy and um, work that we do with the municipalities to work on their development process and also working with our members to make sure that they're up to speed on current happenings in development in general. Yeah, and members are developers. Uh, um, Architects, yeah. Yeah, engineers. And, and so many. So uh, let's get right at it because we're talking affordability here. And, mm-hmm. you know, you had mentioned there's a lot of develop- development happening. Uh, anyone who is familiar with Victoria but hasn't been here for a while looks around and sees all these cranes happening. Mm-hmm. And we're not used to seeing that, right? No, we're, we're going from being a very small, sleepy town into a much more significant economic city. Yeah, yet still small. Still small. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Small to medium. Yes. Uh, but there's so much going on. But the 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 thing, I, and I hear it a lot from people when I'm traveling mm-hmm. uh, about what's going on with Victoria like it's a small little 365,000 person town why is it so expensive and, and how come why can't people or, or, or companies build more affordable developments right so I think um, one thing that we obviously struggle with here is that we're located on an island so unlike a lot of other cities we're not able to grow out in that kind of concentric circle model that, for example, Calgary yeah. or Saskatchewan or Saskatoon might be able to grow. Yeah. Um, we're obviously constrained by our geography. The other thing, too, though, is that uh, from a demographic point of view, there's really two groups, the baby boomers and the millennials, both of whom are at a stage of life where Victoria is extremely interesting, both in terms of retirement and starting a family. And so what we're seeing is a real increased demand for properties here in our city. And then in more general terms as well, there's been a real shift um, across North America towards the revitalization of smaller secondary non-gateway cities. So in the U.S., for example, cities like Nashville, Austin, and Denver have really outperformed some of the bigger gateway centers like Los Angeles and New York in recent years. And I think what we're seeing with Victoria is a similar trend, uh, but on the Canadian context. It's, re- it's made it really hard, especially for people that uh, either have a background here or were born and raised here where uh, they're struggling to get in, not only to own real estate, but also to rent too. Like the rental market is so tight here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely become a very competitive, constrained market, which has really driven up prices. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a big question that comes up often, and I'm sure you get it all the time, is what's the solution? Like, what needs to happen for for it to become more affordable? To be frank, I think we really need more supply. And what we need to see as well is the right type of supply. We have um, a bit of a gap between the condo high-rise towers that are being put up as well, and then the single-family home neighborhoods. And there are a lot of other cities that develop in such a way that they have sort of an entire middle component of supply, which includes things like townhouses and row houses, duplexes and triplexes. And, and that's a very livable, flexible kind of density, which brings a lot of supply online without needing to sprawl um, and you know, which we really can't we do can't. because we're sprawling into the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're here with Jane Bradbury. Jane is the chair of the Victoria chapter of the Urban Development Institute uh, talking about uh, affordability. That's a really interesting point because it's true. It seems Victoria is either condos or houses. Vancouver struggles with that as well. 
Uh, it's definitely something when you look at Vancouver from sort of a, an aerial point of view, you see acres and acres of single-family homes and then large high-rise condos downtown. Yeah. Whereas you look at other centers like, for example, Montreal, and they have whole neighborhoods which are just fee simple row houses, which are really flexible. You can go from, you know, one of those could be a single-family home where one family takes up the whole space beside another one that's subdivided into three different units. It's interesting that you bring up Montreal because I was at a conference last week. Okay. And uh, the, the conversation was all about Toronto and Vancouver and costs and how expensive. I was in the States, right? Mm-hmm. So we were talking about Canada. Uh, and Montreal comes up as this fantastic international city that also happens to be very reasonably priced because real estate there is 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 quite inexpensive, even relative to Victoria, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe they're doing some things right. I think they are. I mean, I think in Montreal's case, they also struggled economically for a long time uh, because of the separatist movement. I actually lived in Montreal for five years. I did my undergraduate degree oh, there. Wow. And my husband is from Montreal, so I've got pretty deep family ties there as well. Yeah. And I think that's one of the difficult things with affordability. You know, there's really two ways to achieve it. One way is to increase supply, and then the other way is to decrease demand. And one of the difficult things with decreasing demand is that it's hard to do without having some adverse economic impacts. Uh-huh. And I think that's what, you know, we see in cities like, for example, Detroit is maybe one of the worst examples of that, where you can buy a house for $12 because there <laughs> is no economic opportunity in that city. Yeah. Montreal during you know the, the 90s was in a similar situation, although not nearly as severe, where the house prices really did drop because of the separatist movement. Calgary right now, they've seen a big drop in their housing prices due to the, the recession there with oil. And, um, and I wouldn't want to necessarily see Victoria achieve affordability in that way. Yes. Yeah, so so important. Um, you know, it's it's funny what you mentioned about the, and we're going to talk more about demand later, but we'll have time to talk about it okay. after the fact because supply really is something that um, many of the guests have talked about on the show here and Montreal. So we had the uh, chief economic uh, officer of the Canadian Real Estate Association at that event I was talking about, mm-hmm. and he was the one that brought up Montreal. And one of the questions from the audience was, "Why is Montreal so cheap?" And his answer was, "Supply." Mm-hmm. Because they have an abundance of supply that we don't have mm-hmm. in Toronto, Vancouver, or Victoria. Absolutely. And, and hence the reason why you can buy something for relatively inexpensive there, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned uh, Calgary and, and being able to grow out, you know, uh, develop outwards. I, I always laugh when I, and I've said it many times too, whenever I'm flying into Calgary, mm-hmm. I'm always looking for the last house. Mm-hmm. Because I know that the next time I'm in Calgary, that won't be the last house. No, it won't. And actually, my my in-laws subsequently moved from Montreal to Atlanta. Okay. And that's another example of a city which has just, again, expanded, created more and more and more supply. Every time I go to Atlanta, my mind is blown because like an entire new Ring. town has yeah. essentially sprung up since the last time I've been there. Yeah. Um, you know, in a way that we just can't achieve here on the island because we are so land constrained. And I think as a result, they see their house prices as they're a lot lower than what we see here in Victoria. Uh, but it's difficult for us to achieve that kind of supply on the single-family home front. We're not able to necessarily develop in that typical suburban model, nor would we particularly want to. No, and especially in a town here where people want to come. So mm-hmm. people end up here. This is where they want, they're not here by accident, right? Exactly. They, they've planned to come here. I think in a lot of cases, you know, you have people who are retiring from other provinces who want to be able to move to Victoria and have planned to do so for you know, sometimes decades. Yeah. Now, you guys are, are locals here, right? We are, born and raised, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And there's very few. I, I, Todd is not, right? 
we'll be talking to stop <laughs> uh, But that's okay. You know, usually it's five or, or maybe 10% of people in a room are locally born Victorians and everybody else comes from another place. Right? I'm probably the classic case. I'm like one of those leading, I'm just barely a millennial. And, you know, I've got young kids. And so I left for university and grad school and, and worked away for about 10 or 15 years and then moved back when I was pregnant with my second daughter. Yeah. Again, for the same reasons that I think a lot of other people are choosing to come back here. There's some great schools. It's a very livable community. Um, and I think for us, it, it made a lot of sense. And I think I'm seeing that with more and more people, just even anecdotally, that are coming into the schools that I'm meeting that are moving from other cities with kids about the same So the age. big question is, why would a city want to curb demand by stopping people like you coming back into town? That is a very good question. Well, well hold that thought, though, okay. because we're going to take a break. Uh, we're, we're, there's, there's a lot of conversation around this here. Uh, Jane Bradbury is the chair of the uh, Victoria chapter of Urban De Development Institute. Um, we're going to take a quick break in just a moment, and when we come back, we'll have a conversation with Todd Littman, and we'll have them both together uh, to continue this, uh, this conversation. Excellent. Back in just a moment. Now, The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. Our show is brought to you by Denise Webster, mortgage broker with Dominion Lending Services Modern Mortgage Group, Lori Zorn, insurance manager for Island Savings, and Carrie Smith, a home inspector from InspectTech. We're talking about Victoria and affordability. Our guest right now is Todd Littman. Todd is with the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. Todd, thanks for coming. Thank you, uh, you know, Todd, uh, your background here, you're the founder and executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. Um, your work helps expand the range of impacts and options considered in transportation decision-making, improve evaluation methods, and make specialized technical concepts accessible to a larger audience. Now, I've had the opportunity to sit at a table with you. I've heard you speak. You, uh, there's a lot of knowledge there that I want to tap into today. We're talking about affordability. Part of it has to do with transportation and getting people around this tiny little town. So where do we start? Well, uh, you're absolutely right, Tony. Uh, housing and transportation are two sides of the same coin. So uh, from a household's perspective, there's often a trade-off. You can either buy a cheaper house out at the urban fringe and you're going to spend a lot more on transportation, or you can spend more for a house in a walkable urban neighborhood and you're going to save money on transportation. And um, similarly, from a, from a community planning perspective, for example, um, well, most people, they never buy a parking space as a separate item. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony, how much do you think a parking space costs? Yeah, so it depends where. So here in Victoria, you're gonna spend probably 30,000 bucks for a parking spot, right? Exactly, those parking spaces yeah. in your house, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, um, in a denser urban area, are going to cost between twenty and sixty thousand dollars each. The parking space yeah. costs more than the vehicle that it accommodates. Yeah, oh, true, yeah. And we hide that cost as part of your development cost. So the cost of parking gets embedded into your mortgage or your rents. It's just part of the construction. Well, if we want to build affordable, more affordable housing, uh, and accommodate people, especially people who are either students or seniors or, uh, or people with disability who don't, who often don't own a car they, or are, are eager to live a car-free lifestyle, 
it's very important that the zoning codes and the development policies allow you to buy or rent a house without being burdened with the cost of the parking. That really, it often turns out that the, the parking costs determine whether or not housing can be affordable. That yeah, and by, people often don't think about that, right? Of course we don't think about it because it's hidden. Yeah. And so um, part of uh, the affordability agenda that I work with is to ensure that anybody, but particularly people with low incomes and disabilities, can find suitable housing in a walkable urban neighborhood and that it isn't burdened with parking costs. It doesn't, you're sit by what we call unbundling the parking. Uh, so for example, instead of paying, let's say $1,800 a month for an apartment that comes with two parking spaces, you would pay $1,400 a month for the apartment and $200 a month for each parking space that you need. So you're not forced to pay that very high cost. If you don't have if, a car. If you don't have a car. Yeah. And now we know that in communities like Victoria, in the walkable neighborhoods in Victoria, households own about half as many cars, half as many motor vehicles as the zoning codes require. So most zoning codes assume everybody owns a car. And yet we're seeing a very large uh, portion of the households in those walkable urban neighborhoods that are car free. Yeah. Well, because for the longest time, parking was like a, a almost a one-to-one. It was one parking stall required for every... Actually, it was higher than that. Higher some than time that. Ago. In most neighborhoods, even now, the zoning codes require between one and two parking spaces per housing unit. Yeah. And that's true even in the walkable urban neighborhoods uh, for lower-priced apartments where students and seniors and people with disabilities and people that don't want to own a car tend to live. And so actually there's some neighborhoods I walk around and I look at the parking lots around the apartments and the condominiums and half the spaces are never occupied. Yeah. They're wasted and that reduces housing affordability. So there are a number of strategies. It's because that, that requirement was, was set in place years ago before um, people's lifestyles changed, right? That's right. So the key to solving problems like inaffordability is to have our zoning codes and development policies that respond to changes. And you look at the zone, the current zoning codes and policies, and they're really based on what people wanted 20 years ago. Yeah. Or in, longer, right? Or longer. Yeah. Where the assumption was everybody owns a car and everybody wants to drive everywhere and everybody wants a single family house and they're unprepared. The, our development policies are actually poorly structured for preparing for a future where people are, of course, much more um, multimodal. So they're relying less on driving and more on walking and bicycling and ride hailing and public transportation. And they want they appreciate the health benefits and the safety benefits of being able to walk rather than drive all everywhere. And they want to live in a walk in an affordable, walkable urban neighborhood. Yeah. So we're here with Todd Lippman. He is with the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. You know, when I think back, uh, all we do is look at, uh, I think that one of the first buildings was the Mosaic 
on Fourth Street, uh, late '90s. It was 1998 or 1999. It was a government building. They uh, it was converted into small, tiny condos at the time. People were wondering how would anyone live in 400 square feet and also no parking. And I remember because I've been around for a long time. Uh, the real estate community was how do you sell a condo that doesn't have parking? But yet, they were affordable, and that's exactly how they went to market. We see so much more now, things like the Janion, right? Um, so Vic, downtown Victoria is going through a very exciting revival. We see, as you mentioned, there are tower cranes, m many tower cranes in downtown. There are more than 4,000 housing units under development in the downtown area. That is a, in our tiny town. In our tiny town, and that is very exciting, and that is a major contribution to uh, building the supply that we need to keep prices affordable. But it's all, almost all of that action is occurring downtown, and not everybody is suited to living in a smaller um, uh, high-rise apartment in downtown. And so the challenge, I believe, for achieving affordability, for expanding the supply and, and being and responding to the to the unmet consumer needs is what we call the missing middle. What are architects and what designers and, and planners call the missing middle, which is the medium size, say two to six story townhouses and apartments. Yeah, that's exactly what Jane was mentioning exactly. earlier. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where the real shortage is. Yeah. And that's where there's tremendous potential. There's an awful lot of people. I don't know, uh, Tony, what your experience is, but when I talk with my friends and, and, uh, and, and people I work with, that's the type of housing many of them want. They, they are happy to live in a townhouse or an apartment if it means that they can live in one of these really nice, walkable urban neighborhoods. And so that is really, I think, the, the key to affordability is to change the zoning codes and development policies so it's easier to build the missing middle, the mid-rise types of housing with unbundled parking in the locations people want to live. Well, there's a solution right there. I love it. You know, uh, talking about, because you, you started off the conversation where people are making the decision between uh, no car living walkable in town or having to go further out. I'm having a conversation right now from a fellow from uh, London, England, who is uh, moving to Victoria. And I've had to have this conversation about the price differential and what he gets for his money uh, downtown versus going out to the western uh, West Shore and that area. And, you know, it's funny because some people are used to commuting an hour and a half, two hours to go to work. And this is still something that's very new uh, here in, in Greater Victoria. We're going to pick up this conversation in just a moment. We need to take a break. Uh, but, Todd, if people need to reach you, how can they do that? Where do they find you? Right. So visit our website, the Victoria Transport Policy Institute website, vtpi.org. Great. Uh, and I will post that and also the Urban Development Institute's information on the website for our listeners to hear. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a conversation with both Jane and Todd about what's happening here in Greater Victoria around affordability. Back in a moment. This is The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for joining us. This is The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. We're having a conversation about affordability and transportation. Our guests in the studio today are the chair of the Victoria Urban Development Institute, Jane Bradbury, and also Todd Littman, who is with the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. Todd has just given us the solution. 
to this affordability thing. We're going to have more conversation, though, but I, I want to pick up with Jane on what we were talking about a little bit earlier, and that is uh, this demand versus supply thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you alluded to some um, interesting policies in the government. I don't know if we're going to be able to get deep into that uh, right now. Uh, of course, listeners know that there's been a lot of um, uh, movement afoot about curbing demand or taxing uh, people to prevent the demand from happening here in Victoria. Um, it goes well. I mean, you are an example of someone who is from here and has come back, decided mm-hmm. to move their family back. I've seen that many times here. Mm-hmm. You know, what used to be the, uh, we used to call Victoria the place of the newly wed and nearly dead, right? Not the same anymore. No, it's definitely not. It's becoming a much more dynamic, vibrant, uh, economically thriving city. Yeah, and that's a good thing. That's what people need, right? For sure. Yeah, it's a, po- a very positive uh, transition for our city as a whole. And I think we're seeing it. You know, our retail vacancy rate has gone down downtown. We have a bunch of new thriving businesses. We have a thriving tech sector. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of positives that come out um, of that demand, but it does cause an affordability problem if it's not also coupled with increased supply. Yeah. Well, and both of you, both both yourself and Todd, have talked about this middle segment mm-hmm. uh, of, of development. So let's have a conversation about that. I mean, why haven't we seen more of that and what needs to be done? Well, I think that residents, especially the older residents, are s- schizophrenic. They say that they want affordability, but they don't want the more compact housing types in their neighborhood. Yeah. They want it someplace else. And so um, that leaves the new development to occur. It leaves very little land available for the new development, and it's inevitably in the less desirable areas. It's in the outlying areas or, or old industrial areas. If we want to accommodate people, including people with low incomes, we need to allow more of that infill. I see it very much as a generational issue. A lot of Older people grew up at a time when cars were very exciting. The assumption was we were all going to have a career job, get married, and live in a single-family house. And that's what our planning was for. Well, it turns out, yeah, some people want that lifestyle, but not everybody does. And it turns out there's a lot of unmet demand for for other housing types. Um, Younger people get it. So when I am at a public hearing over whether or not to allow some uh, townhouses or apartments in a neighborhood, inevitably the opponents have gray hair and the supporters, the neighborhood supporters, are younger people that are looking at these as the type of housing they want to move into. So I do think we're seeing a shift now. The question is how quickly our leadership, our city councilors and our planning leaders will be able to respond to these changing consumer preferences. Yeah, and actually, and that's this is also another good point because there hasn't been a lot of reaction. When we think about the fact that for the lo- for, it was over 20 years, there was no purpose-built rental buildings mm-hmm. in the city of Victoria. Right now, there has been, but only in the past um, maybe two or three years, right? Yeah, and I think what's difficult is when you start to introduce supply like that after a gap of a few decades, the new supply that comes online seems extremely expensive compared to the old supply that was built 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. What would have been a lot more sustainable for a community was to have development happening continuously over the, years. Over, the over those decades so that every time you introduce a new unit, it's just incrementally more expensive than the unit that was introduced a year before. Yeah, That I, unfortunately didn't happen. Right. Uh, the good news, Jane, is that the, 
research is very consistent that adding supply, even if it is initially seems unaffordable, contributes to overall affordability through what we call filtering. So as there's more housing, um, more of the medium-priced housing, then people that were are currently in the low-priced housing, some of them will move into that medium price, freeing up some units. And as we increase supply, those new units depreciate more rapidly. So the what is considered medium-priced housing now will become the affordable housing yeah. in 10 years if we keep building it. Yeah, this is, I, I 100% agree. Yeah. This is a, this is a great conversation because um, just just like you said, Jane, we hear from people saying, oh, all, all these new rental buildings coming up, they're so expensive. Mm-hmm. But that's not... Uh, people who are moving into them, like you just alluded to, Todd, they, they're leaving other accommodation to move up to this new um, product and leaving their places empty for... It's a continuum, housing continuum, right? The, the research is very clear that the reason that we have a shortage of housing, uh, unaffordable housing, in cities like Victoria and Vancouver and Toronto is that we were failing to add that missing middle, the medium density, medium priced housing for the last few decades. And now it's gonna take some time to catch up. But every time we build a unit, especially if it's medium priced, so it's not, it's not the very high penthouse, but it's the type of housing that, um, that, that a professional could live in now, then we're, we're helping increase the affordability at the low end by by adding supply. New stock, for sure. We're here uh, in the studio with our guests, Jane Bradbury from the Urban Development Institute and also Todd Littman from the Victoria Transport Transport Policy Institute. Uh, Jane, I, I had here last year uh, Dave Chard. Okay. And um, because I, I I was at an event and uh, he mentioned something and it's it's on this topic here right now uh, about the fact that he was approached by a young lady who who basically acknowledged the fact that today's new stock is tomorrow's affordable housing. Absolutely. I mean, if we don't, if we fail to approve new stock today in 20 years, we're just going to be worse off than we are right now because today's sort of high-end new units are going to become tomorrow's more affordable units down down the line. And I think we uh, potentially could do our children a real disservice by not bringing those units online today. Yeah, for sure. Now we're seeing them all over town. So uh, the getting to the transportation side of things, um, Todd. I mean, Victoria is so much more than just downtown Victoria. Uh, we're seeing condos in the West Shore that we never saw before. That's right. So um, where developers are allowed to build that missing middle, there's a market for it. There is. There's no question there are a lot of people that want to live in victoria it's a very good problem to have because it shows that we are attractive and economically oh but people want this to stop they want people to stop coming in those old people (laughs) though as i mentioned most of the opposition that i see comes from older generation who understandably they fear change and so they tend to oppose uh, the infill development. They tend to, to oppose uh, apartments and townhouses in their neighborhood. But I think that's changing. Um, we have a, uh, an election coming up. I think this is going to be a very important issue in the upcoming municipal election. And I think that candidates who commit to an affordability agenda 
are going to be successful because uh, I think increasingly people understand that the, the, the criticism of affordable infill, I think, is, is, is uh, coming from a smaller and smaller um, portion of the population. And increasingly, the average citizen in our region understands that we need more responsive policies, policies that create uh, more affordable or middle-priced housing that becomes affordable over time, and policies that create better travel options so that you can, uh, you that with walking, bicycling, ride-hailing, public transit, so it's easy to live without a car. That is, even if you're, you, you might not become totally car-free, but maybe your household will own one car yeah. rather than two. See, that's what I love about staying in downtown Vancouver or downtown Seattle, that whole walkability thing and seeing people live and exist and and work just it, within blocks. And right? it's not just walkability. There's a whole variety of transportation options available to you when you live in a an area that actually supports a diverse transportation network. In Vancouver, you can take the SkyTrain, oh, yeah. you can hop in a car to go. I have so many friends over there who just own one car yeah. and rely heavily on car share transit and biking to get around. Takes a little more planning, but... Well, there are good sides and bad sides <laughs> to living in a compact area and living car-free. But I can tell you from personal experience, our family, our demographically average family, has been car-free for a decade. You know, I, I don't think most people appreciate the full benefits. Yeah. What do you think you get if your house sheds a car? It goes from two cars to one car or one car to zero cars. What does that give you? I think I read somewhere that over a few decades it equates to almost a million dollars in savings. That's right. Yeah. The cost of a car, let's say somewhere around five or $6,000 a year, translates into $100,000 worth of additional house buying ability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. House buying, the power. The, yeah. the, if you take the money that you save yeah. by not owning a car and you invest it in either in, into your mortgage, it allows you to buy a $100,000 more valuable house for the exact same total budget. Now, in the short term, it may seem like a wash. You're, for example, instead of buying a $300,000 house out in the suburbs, you're buying a $400,000 house in town, and you're saving $5,000 or $6,000 a year on transportation costs. But what happens over time? What accrues more equity, spending $5,000 a year on a car <laughs> or spending additional $5,000 a year on mortgage? Yeah. Well, and, yeah. I, and I did this analysis, and it turns out that moving, that choosing the walkable urban neighborhood house that costs an extra $100,000, over the course of your life, you accrue an additional, close to a million dollars in additional equity because your real estate investment appreciates where money spent on a car depreciates. Mm -hmm. so, there, so there we go. That's sound investment advice. And it's it's true because the real estate's the appreciating asset Absolutely. and the car is the depreciating asset for sure. Um, really quickly, because we've got to wrap up here, we could talk for hours on this topic. This is great. Uh, Jane, one of the things that um, has not been addressed in the BC budget has been uh, streamlining or fastlining development. And I'm sure that's something that UDI uh, has had conversation about, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have a lot of variety in our region. We have 13 municipalities, and some do better than others as far as getting supply online quickly. Yeah. But ultimately, the power to achieve affordability in our region really does lie with the, the municipalities and their ability to support creative development and really get behind that. Um, 
you know, we see a lot of projects that potentially get scaled back because of community opposition. And I think in a lot of cases that can be really unfortunate because... And they were often the right development. Absolutely. And decades down the line, we're really going to be regretting the fact that we don't have those additional housing units. Well, uh, it's been a great conversation. So uh, Jane Bradbury with the uh, Urban Development Institute and Todd Littman with the Transport Policy Institute. I'm going to have both of your contact information on the CFAX website. Uh, Thank you very much for coming. And thanks to the listeners uh, for joining us. We'll be here for you this time next week.